following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Today's sermon text is John 19. I'm sorry, John 9, 13 through 25. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. This is God's word. This is how we doing this morning. Everybody good? Amen. I want to talk to you a little bit about gospel witness. So there was a, a story that surfaced uh, some years ago of a young man who, had, who was very sick and near death and um, shared a vision that he had thought taken had 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 professed which had taken place of him uh, uh, going to heaven and there was all sorts of things surrounding that particular vision there was essays and articles and and interviews done and people were blown away by it right blown away by this story until they figured out that it was false and it was it was not true uh, that the young man had actually made the story up um, and had been in some ways encouraged to uh, kind of share the story, even though it got to a point where it had become apparent that the story wasn't real. And, and, and we and we shared that man. It was viral, right? It was it was seen like it was seen as a miracle. And, and and so my thought my thought is is that if we can take bogus miracles and we can share them like that, how much more so real ones, right? Right? We tracking with that. How much more so should we share bona fide, genuine, authentic, real miracles, real supernatural occurrences if we can share things that are not even real or that are not authentic or that are not supernatural in any shape, form, or fashion? And so I want to talk to you a little bit about sharing real miracles, sharing supernatural miracles, namely the miracle of the gospel, the miracle of Jesus Christ coming to earth in the form of a man, in the form of a babe, walking this earth for 30 plus years, never sinning, and then going to the cross, taking upon himself the sin of the world, your sin, my sin, dying on that cross, absorbing the wrath of God that was due to all sinners because of, a, because of his perfection. He required a penalty, a just penalty for that sin, 
and Jesus taking upon himself all of that sin, and then, and then not only going to the cross, but literally being buried and being there for three days and then resurrecting from the grave after three days, ascending into heaven, making perfect intercession and constant intercession for each and every single one of those that now lay claim to him as Lord and Savior and that have trusted him with their lives and that have turned from their old lives and turned from their sin. And he, in turn, has also sent the Spirit behind him. And that Spirit now lives on the inside of every single person that has confessed him as Lord and Savior and has trusted him with their lives. That is a bona fide miracle. And I want to talk a little bit about it. Our gospel needs supernatural transformation. Our gospel needs supernatural transformation. That's our first point for this morning. John chapter eight verse uh, John chapter nine verse eight and nine. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, "Is this not the man who used to sit and beg?" And some said, "It is he." Others said, "No, but he is like him." He kept saying, "I am the man." So they said to him, "Then how were your eyes open?" How are your eyes open? We talked about this man last week. This man suffered all of his known life, all of his life period. From the time he was born, from the time he came forth out of his mother's womb, the scripture says that he was blind. And the, and the disciples, puzzled and complex, uh, really confused by this, said, whose sin is this? Is it his? Is it his parents? What is going on that a man would be blind? Because certainly there is no good purposes from God that would cause this to happen. And we talked about the fact that actually there is. And Jesus points that out, that he was blind so that the works of God could be fulfilled. And we, and we delved really, really deep into, into the, the ideal and the, and, the, and the notion of suffering in Scripture and suffering in our own personal lives. And I would tell you to go back and listen to it, but we don't have it, so apologies for that. Um, we'll have to, if you, if, you, if you didn't hear last week, call me up and maybe we'll preach it over the phone or something. I'm not sure how that would work, all right? But, but we don't have it, so I can't tell you to go back and listen to it. But nevertheless... Now that this man has been healed, something has taken place, and, and people want to know about it. You know, I was on Twitter last night, and, and, and Jackie Hill Perry, as I was kind of just looking over the news, because I kind of searched Twitter, and it gives me a quick update of what's going on in the world and the news and all that kind of stuff. And Jackie Hill Perry is a, uh, is a gospel artist, a gospel rapper, gospel poet, um, also gospel speaker. Um, love to hear her thoughts. And, and one of the things she shared last night was actually right in line with something I was going to tell you guys this morning, and it's this. Discipleship is both communicative and perceivable. We teach with our words and we teach with our lives. Discipleship is a combination of what we hear, is what she's saying, and what we see, right? But the same can be said about our witness. It's a combination of what we hear and a combination or, or and what we see. Our witness to the world should be both seen and heard. And this appears to be the case for the man who was once blind but now sees. First of all, his witness was seen. God, God's displayed glory and power in him and in turn also in us fuels our witness. It's a visual dynamic of evangelism. The crowds were moved to inquire about Jesus when they saw Jesus' power on display in the life of a man who was once blind. Others around you, those that have known your blindness or have known of your blindness, and I'm talking about your spiritual blindness now, those that have known of your blindness from birth will be hard-pressed not to notice when your spiritual eyes have been opened. 
people that have been close to you, people that have walked with you, they will be hard-pressed not to notice when things have changed, leaving you with an opportunity to share the source of that change or share the source of this newfound hope that has been established in you, the source of your miracle. People will look and they'll say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, Susie used to be so mean to everybody. And now, and now she doesn't appear to be as mean as she used to be. What, what is going on in the life of Susie, right? Or, or, or Billy used to sleep around with so many women, and now it seems like Billy is, is not only is he not really hitting on women as much as he used to or sleeping with women as much as he used to, but he's no longer even hitting on women, right? He's backed up off of that. What is going on with Billy? Or Johnny used to be such a workaholic, and it seemed to define him, and it seemed to, he seemed to have all of his identity wrapped up in his performance at work and how high he could excel up the corporate ladder. But now he doesn't seem to be as concerned with that particular element of his life. He seems to have a new interest that's driving him. What, what is going on in the life of Susie, in the life of Billy, in the life of Johnny? See, sanctification is an ongoing process, and as it continues, as sanctification, as growth, as gospel sanctification, gospel change continues, the growth cannot be ignored. People start noticing it, right? So it's that instant transformation, but even as you continue on, people are like, man, what's going on with this brother? What's going on with this sister? What does the watching world say about Jesus when they observe your life? How many people are asking when they look at your life, is this not the man? Is this not the woman who once we saw was blind? How many people are saying that about you? A young actress just last week who had completely walked away from acting was asked about what led her back to acting, what led her back to the road of acting, and this was her response. She said, I was going through a very difficult time in my life. I needed to take a break from acting because I really idolized it, so I came off from it, and I went on a journey to discover my relationship with God, and I became a Christian, and it really just gave me so much love and light within myself. I felt secure, like I didn't need validation from anyone else or getting apart. My happiness wasn't dependent on that. It was dependent on my relationship with God. I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful. I'm centered in who I am. I'm not perfect. As a Christian, you're not perfect, you know, but you're walking every day and trying to stay connected. This young actress had a witness that people noticed. How did you get back on this road? Seems like you were never returning again. How did you get back here? And now you seem to be at so much peace now that you're back. What happened? Does that make sense? This blind man had a credible witness because of the miracle that happened in his life, and so do you. But not only is your witness visual, People can see it and notice it, but again, the, the witness must be audible. It must be something that people hear. And so our gospel witness needs supernatural awe because that's what gives audio to our witness. The awe that we carry with us for what God has done in our lives fuels us and fuels our witness. See, those supernaturally touched by Jesus also become audible witnesses for Jesus. Are you tracking with that? In other words, when God is working through us, our witness is not just seen, but it's also heard. So, so Black Panther came out two weeks ago, right? And I've already seen it three times. Heads up. I'm just giving you a shout. I'm just letting you know. Seen it three times already, all right? So, hey, 
They got me on board, right? But before Black Panther came out, there was this big push that came out of nowhere, and it was this hashtag that was circling around all, all through social media, and the hashtag was Black Panther so lit, right? And it generated so much buzz, so much buzz, that it made literally close to $300 million the opening weekend. And now it's close to $600 million in the second weekend, and they're expecting Black Panther to make like over a billion dollars. People were talking about it anywhere you go on social media. People had something to say about this movie. And many stood in awe for the first time, that, uh, uh, in awe of the fact that for the first time, rather, a superhero movie with a massive budget had a predominantly black leading cast, a, a, a talented black director, and a virtuous black superhero that kids could literally see themselves in. And, and, and I know somebody's, somebody may say, hey, there, there's already been black superheroes. I'm not talking about blank man, okay? That's not really what we would classify as a legitimate superhero. And so, and so people were really, really, really excited, and, and, and they were talking about it and sharing it, not to mention the movie was actually really good. And because of this awe and because of this wonder, they shared the word about the movie in an unbelievably viral way. Because this is what happened when awe, this is what happens rather when awe hits the heart. We share our wonder with the world. We see this on display in John 9 before a far more transcendent reason, a far more important reason. The awe that can be realized in a movie, no matter how special the movie can be, cannot be compared to the awe that can be realized in coming in contact with the Savior of the world. See, John chapter 9, verse 10 and 12, show, 10 through 12, shows us that this awe filled the soul of this man who was once blind but now sees. They said to him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Shalom and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. He was more than happy, even though he knew the consequences, even though he knew what was going on, even though he knew the chaos that Christ was creating. And so it's probably best to just keep quiet. He was more than happy to share it. Why? Because his heart was filled with awe and with wonder for this Savior. Witness erupts from this man's heart because his heart is filled with wonder at what Jesus has done for him. He can't stay silent. He can't stay silent. A man who was blind now sees. How can you stay silent to that, right? How can you keep quiet when you were once blind, but, but now you are literally seeing but isn't that exactly what has happened to you and what has happened to me? That we were once blind, but now we, in fact, see. So why are we so silent? See, it is only when the miracle that Christ wrought in your heart grows common that our witness concerning Christ grows silent. When it becomes common, when it feels familiar to you, when it loses its sense of wonder. Our witness is silent because our vision for the wonder of God's saving work in our lives is too dim. Have you experienced the wonder of salvation? Have you experienced what is described by Paul as he writes to the church of Ephesus? 
in the second chapter of Ephesians. Have you experienced this? Listen to this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Have you experienced that? Has that happened to you? If it has, then you cannot forget it. You cannot let that become common in your life. You cannot let that just become another experience. Your salvation was more than a mere set of random decisions. Your salvation was miraculous. He says that you were dead. Dead people don't talk. Dead people don't respond. You were made alive by Jesus. Not because you just felt like it was a good thing to do that day. Literally, Jesus orchestrated it in your life. What happened to you was miraculous. In fact, I dare to say that the transformation of your heart was more of a miracle than the opening of this man's eye. The transformation of your heart required a transformation of a thing that can't even be seen in the natural. It can't be touched with our physical hands. At least the eyes, you can see them, you can touch them, you can evaluate them, you can x-ray and try to figure something out. But your soul cannot be seen, and God did something much with it. He awakened it. He brought light and darkness. He made it alive. This is what Peter says concerning the wonder of our salvation. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he says this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully. Prophets searched for this. And inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that they have now been announced to you, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Listen to that. That describes your salvation. Resist the urge to lump your salvation in the same uh, category as all the other significant life experiences that you've had. It is beyond and above anything that has transpired in your life. Marriage, birth of children, healings, new jobs, promotions, meeting a guy, meeting a girl. It's above all of that. None of those things are as significant and as important as they are, as, as the thing that moved the ancient prophets to study and research to pinpoint the time and the person by which this particular thing would take place. None of those things are as important, though they were essential and though they may have shaped your life, none of those things were as important as the thing that created longing in the angels in heaven. The angels longed in heaven 
to see how your salvation was working. That is miraculous. You want to understand the wonder of your salvation, you don't have to look any further than that. The angels looked at your personal brokenness. The angels looked at God's infinite holiness and the cursed nature of this sinful world. And they said to themselves, how on earth is he going to pull this off? If angelic beings who existed for millenniums are amazed at the plan and power of God that brought you salvation, how much more so should we be amazed by it? Kathy Lee Gifford was invited on to NBC's uh, Megyn Kelly Today Show this week and to discuss the passing of her good friend, Reverend Billy Graham, who died just days ago at the age of 99. And from the very beginning, you could hear the joy in Kathy's voice as she rejoiced at Reverend Graham's passing on into heaven. You could hear this woman and hear the wonder and the awe that she carried for her salvation. Listen to this. This is what she said. What just happened for Billy, what just happened for my husband, happened for my mother and for my father. Everybody that dies in Christ goes immediately into the arms of Christ for eternity. This is the hope of the Christian faith. Yes, it gives the tools to live in the world today while we're alive, but that's why I could hold my dead husband in my arms and rejoice because I knew where he was. And it gives you the peace that passes all understanding. And if we've ever needed peace in this world, we need it now. Somebody asked me, why are you so bold about your faith? And I just want to look in everyone's beautiful face right now, and I want to say, you know what? If you had the cure for cancer, would you keep it quiet? Or would you hold it and keep it a secret? And I always say, I have the cure for the malignancy of the soul. And he has a name, and his name is Jesus. When our hearts are stricken with awe for what God has done, then like the blind man who now sees, we have to tell it. Are you tracking with that? Our gospel needs supernatural awe and it needs supernatural transformation, but it also needs supernatural knowledge. So if you look at verse 24, it says, So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is sinner, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? This man who not too long ago was on corners begging for bread is now being confronted by the elite in his community. Both he and his family are being pummeled with question after question. How did this happen? How did this happen? Where is he? Where did he go? The accusation is that the unblinded man or, the, or the, the man who now sees was not giving glory to God. Now, understand, this is not a call to worship, but this is not a call to praise. That's not what they're asking him when they say give glory to God. Actually, what we see the same language in the Old Testament book of Joshua. There's a story in Joshua where there's a, there's a per, the, when they conquer Jericho, God says, devote, okay, take some of this and devote some of this to me. And what ends up happening is that some of the people in the camp with Joshua take the things that God said, devote to me, and they kind of put it in their own, uh, put it in their own tents and keep it for themselves. And so God says, hey, something has happened. Somebody's took what is not, uh, belong, that does not belong to them, but belongs to me. You need to call everybody to the carpet and find out what's going on. And so they end up calling everybody to the carpet and they find out that Achan, a man, was the, uh, a man in the camp, was the one who had taken the devoted thing. 
And when they find out that, that when Achan comes to the, to, to the carpet, they bring him to the carpet, Joshua says, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. You see, you hear that? Same thing that, same thing that, the, that the Pharisees just said. Give glory to God. What does that mean? Tell the truth. Are you tracking? Don't lie. Honor God by telling us what actually happened. So this call by, by the Pharisees in John 9 is the same thing. Honor God by telling us what just happened. Something has happened, but, but it's not what you describe. Maybe somebody has healed you, but not the guy that, that, that we know. Maybe you were never blind. Tell us something that we can believe. Tell us the truth. There are two reasons for the reason why they don't believe he's telling the truth. One is because Jesus is a sinner in their minds. And number two, Jesus is unknown. Jesus is a sinner. It means that we know this, we know this man, they say it in verse 24, we know this man is a sinner. This word doesn't just connect Jesus with the rest of humanity like all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's not what this means. It's actually saying that he was above the normal imperfect sinner in his sin. It places him in the company of the most heinous of sinners in Jerusalem or Israeli culture. He's a notorious sinner. He is a sinner or a severe transgressor of God's law and orthodox traditions. To the religious elite, this seemed obvious. Their, their misuse of the law caused them to look at Jesus, who was healing on the Sabbath, and say, well, of course, I mean, he doesn't even respect the Sabbath. Because they didn't understand how the Sabbath actually worked. They couldn't understand that Jesus' act, act of mercy on the Sabbath wasn't a transgression of, a, of the Sabbath, but it was a fulfillment of what's supposed to happen on the Sabbath. And so, not only was Jesus a notorious lawbreaker for them, but he, uh, not only was he not a notorious lawbreaker, but Jesus, in fact, we know, was the perfect law keeper. Nevertheless, the healed man doesn't have the same knowledge of Christ that we have. He, he hasn't heard about him in the sense of knowing that he's perfect. He doesn't have the complete story yet. But nevertheless, his answer is just as powerful because he says this, verse 25, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though, that though I was blind, now I see. Here we see the unblinded man answers the first question with the knowledge grounded simply in his experience. I don't know every detail about him, but I know what he's done for me. Sometimes you just have to let, let yourself proclaim what God has done for you. And that doesn't require a seminary degree. That doesn't require a theological degree. It doesn't require you to be familiar with every fine point about soteriology and pneumatology and ecclesiology. It just requires you to share how Jesus has touched your life. I, once, I don't know. I just know that I'm not the same. I can't explain all of it. No, I haven't read the Bible from cover to cover yet, but I know that I'm no longer the same. After being asked whether or not they were budding followers of Jesus by this same man, they are persuaded to share their second objection, which is that Jesus was an unknown. They say in verse 28, they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Technically, they know where he comes from. In fact, just two chapters ago, we hear the crowd saying, we know where this man comes from. 
So, so, I mean, it's pretty, pretty obvious. And when the Christ appears, they continue to crowd in, ch- in chapter 7. No one will know where he comes from. So two chapters ago, they were saying, listen, if the Christ comes, no one will know where he comes from. And we know where this man comes from, so this disqualifies, disqu- disqualifies him. Now, two chapters later, they're saying, we don't know where this man comes from. So that disqualifies him. So you can see there's some confusion going on as to whether or not they should know or whether or not they should not know or what's going on. But in chapter 7, Jesus also proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me, you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. In other words, their claim that they don't know where he is from is not an indictment or a judgment on him. Their claim that they don't know where he's from and is indictment and judgment on them. He comes from God the Father just like Moses, but they don't know either of them like they think they do, which is why they don't know him. Does that make sense? The man who, who's been healed from his blindness since birth seems to be much better informed, though, even though they don't know Moses like they think they do. Remember, John, Jesus even says that in John chapter 5. He says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. If you do not believe his writings, you don't believe my words. So they don't know him like they think he, they do. But this man seems to know a little bit more about Jesus. He says in verse 30, the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. He's quoting from Old Testament passages such as Job and such as Psalms where it talks about God hearing the prayers of the righteous Verse 32, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And so he says, you can look through all of our historical records. You may have seen uh, one or two instances of somebody that was blind but now sees, but you've never seen someone who has been born blind that now sees. If this man were not from God, he he could not do this. He could do nothing. This man is saying, you might not know where he comes from, but he's doing things that shows us he could be only from one place. Or to better phrase it, only from one person, God the Father. You tracking with that? And so this man shows more knowledge of God and more insight to God than the people that have, quote, unquote, studied God all of their lives. Supernatural, right? Supernatural. God gives you insight, gives you glimpses, gives you pieces if you're willing to see, right? But if in your pride you stay haughty and if in your pride you stay opposed to all of God's knowledge, then knowledge will be withheld. Our gospel needs supernatural courage. So this is what happens. They answered him. You were born in utter sin. Would you teach us? So in a sentence, they literally acknowledged that the man was born blind. Remember, they're trying to even, remember, they were saying at first, hey, maybe he wasn't even blind. But in a sentence, they acknowledged that he was born blind because they acknowledged the fact that he was born in utter sin. The point being this, that when they said you were born in utter sin, what they were saying is that you were sinful in such a way that caused the predicament that you experienced. Do you remember what the disciples said at the very beginning when the blind man, when they came upon the blind man? Whose sin was this, right? And so them saying you were born in utter sin is their way of saying, hey, we saw you. We know know where you came from. 
You were blind the other day because of sin. Somebody sinned. Your sin or your parents' sin, somebody sinned. But you were born in utter sin. You were lower than all of us. And now here you come along trying to teach us, which they're wrong on both accounts, right? He was not born in utter sin. Jesus clarified that in the very beginning of the chapter. But he was capable of teaching them. You know why? Because he was the one that could actually see. And I'm not just talking about physically now. I'm talking about spiritually. His eyes were actually open. And so he was able to teach the teachers of the law because while they had studied the law, they had never truly seen God like this man now sees God. But they say, you were born in utter sin. Would you teach us? And they cast him out. Listen to it. Listen, listen. Prepare for the boldness created through God's supernatural work in you to cost you something when you begin to open your mouth and speak. Even sometimes in the company of the religious folk. I mean, this isn't, this isn't you know, a, a camp of what they would call heathens, right? This is supposed to be a camp of religious elite. And they're casting him out because he's simply sharing the witness about Jesus Christ. In fact, this is the very root of his parents' struggle. We, we, didn't, we haven't covered that, but when you look at verses 16 through 23 of this chapter, his parents say, when they come to his parents and they say, hey, heard your, heard your boy can see now. And they say, yeah, he's been blind since birth. They say, well, how did that happen? They say, well, you need to talk to him. And it sounds noble, but then the scripture gives us insight as to why they said it, right? It says the reason that they said it was because they feared being casted out if they laid the claim of his healing on Jesus. And so his parents suffered the lack of courage that this man does not have on display, but his parents also were still able to stay in the, stay in the camp while this man was kicked out. Do you understand that? Sometimes your supernatural courage in God will push you out of the camp, even the camps of the religious elite. This has been something that's been happening since the beginning of time. When we look at Acts, we see the disciples were ostracized. Why? Because of their boldness. When we look at historical examples, we see even in Rome that people were ostracized. Why? Because of their boldness. The early church, the first, second, and third century church was ostracized because of their boldness. We have brothers and sisters right now living overseas in Asia and in the Middle East that are ostracized and in Africa, ostracized. Why? Because of their boldness, sharing Christ unapologetically. But be careful not to, not to think that the boldness of cultural Christianity is the same thing as the boldness of genuine Christianity. And what I mean by that is this. There is, a there is sometimes when we can, can exist in a space where there's a certain kind of Christianity that's accepted. And you can be bold in that and people will embrace you. Cultural Christianity's boldness is the kind of boldness that uses the words of Scripture when it is expedient and convenient. It's the, it's the kind of call for sexual piety when justice isn't convenient. So you talk about sexual piety when justice isn't convenient, right? That's one camp. And then in another camp, you call for mercy and justice when sexual piety isn't convenient. Are you tracking with this? So you can split the gospel. <laughs> Does that make sense? 
And you can share things that people are okay with sharing on one side and just keep some of this other stuff to yourself because you know everybody's going to erupt and erupt in rage. And then you can share on this other side things that people are comfortable with over here and keep some of the other stuff on that side to yourself because you're afraid they'll erupt with rage if you share that. Does that make sense? That's how cultural Christianity takes shape. It can call for personal responsibility when sacrificing one's goods is not favorable. And it can call for sacrifice alone when challenging people to fight against the corrosive effects of sin is not favorable. Cultural Christianity emboldens us only in the areas that generate the increase of our favor amongst our tribes. While remaining silent in the areas that could cause us to lose such favor with those tribes. The type of boldness that our Lord calls us to is the boldness that allows us to testify of his goodness, whether it be convenient or whether it is not. Does that make sense? It is the type of power that emboldens us to share of the Spirit's power in giving us self-control and sacrificial mercy. It is the type of unction that strengthens us to call men to repentance of lust, and greed. Are you tracking? To call them to piety, holiness, and justice. Are you tracking? In other words, the witness of the test and the testimony of authentic Christianity is often found on the fringes outside of all the other camps of the world. That's where you find genuine Christianity sometimes. What, what cultural Christianity does is it basically latches itself onto whatever cultural idols exist in the day. Frederick Douglass, this, this is Black History Month, and if you go and read about Frederick Douglass, one of the things that you'll hear about is that he wrestled with Christianity in our culture, in, this, in the American culture. He didn't wrestle with Christianity. He wrestled with Christianity in his culture. He said that, hey, the, Christian, the Christianity that I know, the Christianity of Jesus, I'm perfectly fine with. But the Christianity that seems to be, uh, be behind, you know, owning slaves and, and, and owning people and abusing people, I don't understand how that works. It's a, and he called it the Christianity of America, right? In other words, it was a cultural Christianity that everyone had embraced. But he said the, that's not the Christianity of the Bible. And let me tell you, it's not just back then. There's a lot of cultural Christianities on every side of the aisle that exists. And we will be tempted to stand up and boldly, boldly proclaim Jesus Christ in that cultural Christianity and then grow silent when we know that Jesus is speaking against that culture because we're afraid of where it's going to put us. Does that make sense? The closer our witness is to the center of Christianity, the higher the possibility of being pushed to the fringes of our culture. You need to understand that. And so, yes, go and proclaim the gospel, but go and proclaim it like it is. Don't be ashamed to say, no, 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 brother. Jesus is not for that. And don't be ashamed to say on this side, no, 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 sister. Jesus is not for that either. You don't have to align with every single cultural talking point that you receive and try to Christianize it. Some of it can't be Christianized. So this man speaks boldly. He shares exactly what Christ has done. And because of it, he is ostracized and kicked out. But guess, let's look at what happens in closing. Jesus heard, verse 35, that they had casted him out. 
And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? See, all of this is, all of this is for naught. All of this, the, the gospel witness that needs a supernatural transformation and a supernatural awe and a supernatural courage, all of this is for naught without supernatural, a supernatural Savior to witness and share about. Amen? And so this is what happens. This man is casted out for standing with Jesus. But notice what happens right after that. The man is casted out for standing with Jesus, but Jesus seeks him out. The unblinded man's parents were absolutely right in one sense and absolutely wrong in another sense. They were right that if they acknowledged Jesus, it would cost them favor and standing amongst the religious elite. They were right about that. It did cost him. But they were absolutely wrong about this. They were wrong to believe that the approval of the religious elite was more significant than the approval of Jesus Christ. See, in being and see, in standing against the religious elite, this man had a God who did not leave him alone, but sought after him to stand with him. Are you tracking with that? And so your witness, yeah, it, it, sure, your witness may cause some friendship sometimes when people don't, you know, when people, I mean, because we live in this kind of partisan culture where if you don't agree with every single dot and every single line and, and tittle, then you aren't a part of the group anymore, right? Or and it doesn't matter, it happens on both sides. And so it may cost you some, some capital, it may cost you some cultural capital, some social capital, but you know what it won't cost you? It won't cost you Jesus. Jesus is standing with you when you are boldly standing for him. He isn't going anywhere. Your boldness in testifying concerning the goodness of Jesus is not wasted by Jesus. He says in verse 39, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. What's happening here? Jesus says, or D.A. Carson says, that he came to save, not condemn. But saving some entails condemning others. In that derivative sense, Jesus has indeed come for judgment. This is the paradox of the revelation that in order to bring grace, it must also give offense. And so can turn to judgment. In order to be grace, it must uncover sin. He who resists this binds himself to his sin. And so through the revelation, sin for the first time becomes definitive. In other words, he's saying this, that Jesus doesn't have to judge. That Jesus, just by coming and presenting what grace looks like, when people reject it, they find judgment. Does that make sense? And so, this, and so when Jesus says that for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind, he's saying this, that when I come and I bring light... Those that reject the light find themselves judged because they remain in darkness. The Pharisees heard this. And this is the last thing that we find ourselves reading from this text. It says in verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Here's the interesting thing about the Pharisees in this story is that there are none blinder than those who refuse to see. The paradox of this story is that the man who was the blindest in the beginning 
is the one who has the most vision at the end. And that the people who had, quote unquote, the most vision in the beginning are the blindest people in the end. The Pharisees, and, and, not, and, and, the, and the refusal to acknowledge, this is the thing about, that, that Jesus is saying. If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say you see, your guilt remains. What's going on with the Pharisees is that their refusal to simply say, we don't see, keeps them blind. If they would just simply say, we don't see, so give us vision. If they would come off the high horse, right, of all of their years of training and all their years of law and understanding the law, quote, unquote, thinking that they understand the law and thinking that they know the law. If they would just come off the high horse and just sit at the feet of the Savior and say, we do not see God would give them vision. And so he leaves us with a question that we must ask ourselves, how well do we see, right? How well are we trying to see? Are we staying at, the, at his feet? Are we humbling ourselves and, and, and saying, listen, that we don't have control of this life like we think we do, and we don't know everything that we think we know, that we need a savior, we need help in this world, that we need someone to bring sight to our blindness. Are we humbling ourselves in a way that allows us to receive the miraculous restoration of our spiritual blindness or the miraculous restoration of our spiritual sight? Are we presenting ourselves in a way that Jesus can actually perform that miracle? Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you. We give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. Father, we ask and we pray that if there uh, be any in this room who, do, who does not know you, we ask that they would come to saving faith in you today. We ask, Lord God, that you would open the eyes of the blind so that they may see. Open the eyes of the blind that they may see. Father, help us stare in wonder and awe at the saving work that you have completed in us. Let it not become common to us. And let it fuel a bold, courageous witness in sharing of the gospel with our neighbors, with our family, with our friends, with our coworkers, with the clerks at the grocery store, the tellers at the bank. May we befriend as many as possible. May our light shine brightly so that they might ask, what is it that's going on in your life that I don't have? And may we never fail to mention that it is Christ that has opened my eyes. And though I was once blind, now I see. These things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.